0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and my uncle, Arindia Cochran, was one of the first black journalists to cover the White House back in the 1950s, working for the Washington Star. I remember telling you about it was actually too racist, and when he would sit down and lunch, the reporters would get up and walk away. So he wound up leaving and starting his own paper, the black, uh, black paper, Niagara Falls Patriot. But he helped to nurture my love of writing and my interest in journalism. And that interest led me to get a job with the Cleveland Plain Dealer, it was the largest paper in Cleveland, where I was a copy boy. And this was back in the day. And so the reporters would sit at their desk at their typewriters, young people Google what that is, type their stories up, pull the piece of paper out of the typewriter, bring it over to me. I would put it into a pneumatic tube and shoot that upstairs to where it would be physically laid out for the newspaper. Two years later, I got an internship at the Plain Dealer on the editorial board where I got the paper, we would talk about the weekly uh, events, what's going on in the world, and I got the paper to take the then radical step of urging the United States government to talk to the African National Congress. It was 1985, Nelson Mandela was still in prison. I share that history to highlight just how much the media business has changed over the past few decades. And so today we're going to talk about what those changes mean in terms of the obstacles and opportunities for people of color and in general, and for building a multiracial democracy in particular. And for that conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by a guest who is squarely in the middle of these swirling changes that are taking place in the media and communications landscape. And joining me for the conversation is my co-host, Charlene Chang, who was also a journalism OG from back in the day. Hi, Charlene, how are you? And you want to introduce our guest.
1: Yes, I'm doing great. And Definitely an OG, and how O is the O? The O is so O that I think back to when I was in high school, I was the editor of a high school newspaper, and we would run the text through a machine that put wax on the back of one piece of paper, then you would cut out the piece of paper and then stick wow. it onto another piece of paper, and then some, you maybe go through another machine, and that is, it would make copies of it, and that is was the called the paste-up, and that was yeah. how we put out our school paper, wow. and I was in a bunch of newsrooms, didn't have to do anything on a typewriter. So not that O, but O enough that we had no internet <laughs> and no cell phones. And yeah, that is how I did actually, I think almost the majority of my journalism newspaper career, or maybe half, half, you know, internet, web, but half of it was without. So I am thrilled today to be talking to a fellow journalist. Our guest today is Alexi McCammond. Alexi is a political journalist. She's an opinion editor at the Washington Post and has served as an NBC and MSNBC contributor. She was also a contributor for PBS's Washington Week. And prior to joining the Washington Post, she was a national political reporter for years at Axios. In 2020, Alexi appeared on Forbes' 30 Under 30 list. And so you can do the math. She is a young, budding, incredible journalist um, in this new age of journalism. And I cannot wait to talk to her and get her thoughts on how things have changed. And she's probably just like, I can't believe how old oh, you guys are from your journalism <laughs> stories of how news used to get produced. <laughs> we used to put had tablets, Alexi, we had tablets and then we would chip away and make headlines <laughs> into the clay.
2: The only <laughs> Welcome, tablet Alexi. I know now is my iPad, <laughs> exactly. so thank you, yep. I'm like, even that's feeling old these days. <laughs> You know, I worked on my high school newspaper, and that's probably the closest I have to your experience. Uh, I would have to stay like during lunch or after class, and you know, was designing the pages and had to make sure we were meeting the deadline so it'd get to the printer on time so we could have the physical paper for publication and. Stressing about that in high school was not always fun, and I love that I'm at the post now, and I don't have to think about inches or column Mm -hmm. space. Uh, Luckily, other people deal with the paper side for opinion, but that's the last time I had to deal with the printing press.
0: (laughs) Column inches are not a big part of the Instagram era, so...
2: No, (laughs) I used to also like cold call local businesses, trying to sell ads to get the paper uh, in circulation. It was wow. it was a good experience. I yeah. really love doing it, but um, it's Fills funny to character. think about that now. Mm. Yes, totally, totally. I mean, I, my sister is only two years younger, and I can't even get her to pick up the phone for me. You know, she's like, they do <laughs> not want to talk phone. on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having me. I'm so happy to see you.
1: Thanks for being here. Of course. We're so thrilled to have you here. We're going to get into it. Lexi, um, you don't know we're on to going back down memory lane. You've told us you're your high school newspaper editor. We were interested in asking you this. You were a sociology major, actually, at University of Chicago. And you did, when you were there, write for an undergraduate political publication. It was called The Gate. But apparently, our research shows that you originally wanted to be a doctor. And is that accurate? And um, just kind of curious. So where,
0: where, yeah. like, how
1: did that journey go that you went for? First of all, like, how did you start from wanting to be a doctor and then going into sociology and then getting into mm-hmm. journalism and media?
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. Good research team. I'm always afraid of like how much exists about <laughs> me on the internet. But then I laugh when it's wrong. And it says I'm like 6'3 and worth like $2 trillion. And I'm like, well, if uh, only. It's a bad
1: problem. <laughs> yeah, good problem to have.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. So when I was I grew up in the Midwest, I'm from Rockford, Illinois, which is pretty northwest from Chicago. And I was the first in my family to go to college. I'm the middle of three. Mm. And I always, you know, I'm a big animal person. I'm a big people person. And I've always wanted to help people and be in situations where I could talk to them and understand their problems and then work towards solutions. I, from a young age, was like, well, obviously that means being a doctor. And my parents, bless their hearts, being from the Midwest, having not gone to college themselves, they were like, yes, absolutely do that and do not think of anything else. You'll make enough money to take care of us someday. Like that's the right career path. Do that. So I loved external validation from a young age, and that kept me going for a long time to the point where I wasn't even really allowing myself to consider doing something like journalism as a viable career option, even though I was fully I was telling a friend about this the other day. My sister and I would make these little home movies. They were like sketch shows, essentially. And I always made sure there was like a news segment in there. And so I would be doing little stand ups, like in my bedroom, you know, talking about like, I don't know, the weather in Rockford and like what's going on at home. Um, And I would make little zines and pass them out to my family members and was always loving writing and reading and watching the news and having discussions. But You know, frankly, uh, we were like a lower, kind of middle class family in the Midwest. We lived paycheck to paycheck for a really long time. And my understanding of a job was a very transactional thing that I was to do to make money. So I was like, I'll never make money writing for a newspaper who knows where they will be once I graduated college in 2015. You know, people weren't really sure where media was going. But when I got to college, I was so lucky to be at the University of Chicago. It was a huge culture shock for many reasons. I had only gone to public schools before that. And those experiences alone were totally different. But I got there and I had to have a real come to Jesus moment with myself because I started taking these classes like, you know, organic chemistry and these like advanced biology classes. And I love learning for the sake of learning. So school is like totally my jam. But it got to a point where I was like, Lexi, like, you're kind of unhappy in these classes, I couldn't really see the fully formed life that I wanted down the road, mm-hmm. like a partner and you know being able to travel and having interests outside of work. I just, I didn't, I couldn't see that with the path that I was following. And I was like, well, what do you actually like doing? What have you actually always enjoyed? Writing, reading, <laughs> media consumption. And so I had to just sit with myself and say like, look, I know this is really scary. U Chicago doesn't even have a journalism program. So it was like, well, what am I going to study if it's not so clear? And I just called my parents one day and was like, listen, I'm switching my major to sociology, and I'm going to pursue being a reporter. And this is what I really want to do. And they were... um, you know a little confused at first uh eventually supportive their initial reaction was like you're gonna make no money and i was kind of like i'm just gonna, i have to believe in myself like this is what i want to do and i will be successful if i'm so passionate about it and sociology was a matter of talking to friends and being sort of like what do you guys think I'm interested in mm-hmm. like what have you taken classes in that you think I would vibe with and sociology was so perfect for me i mean like we got to do like the most random things we were assigned to take the bus and the train up and down and around chicago and be little ethnographers and just take notes on people that you notice and trends and places that you go all the time that you wouldn't have seen otherwise and at the core of it all as i said at the start it was about wanting to know other people's problems or hopes and dreams, you know, and ideas and where I could fit into either helping them solve an issue or bring something to life. And I love learning about the squishy parts of what makes us who we are. And sociology is a huge part of that. And I think that it's helped me view sort of what I do from a different lens than I would have if I had done a traditional journalism program for four years. But it was great. And I feel like I look back now, and in the moment, I couldn't see sort of everything lining Mm -hmm. up to what it has now. Uh, But it was all so perfect for me. And I wouldn't do anything over. I mean, maybe I'd like not take the chemistry classes (laughs) in the first quarter. (laughs) It's so
0: fascinating that we had, you know, you and I have talked some stuff, you know, before, but not about this. And so I went to college thinking I was going to be a doctor until I took organic chemistry. And then that was my similar type of piece. And so I realized, I was like, I wouldn't mind being a doctor, but I didn't want to become a doctor in terms of going through all of that. So that's very fascinating. Weeding out realities. So I, in terms of these changes, you mentioned that things were, you know, uh, certainly when you're in high school and in college. And so the question has to do with what you've seen in terms of the technology and how this technological development have impacted journalism and writing and communications, right? And so you, you worked for six years at Axios, right, which is a you know very kind of new media e techie media startup. And then now you're at Bezos' Washington Post, which is both the epitome of legacy newspaper and at the, in terms of certainly in terms of Washington, D.C. Uh, I love uh, all the president's men and the whole Watergate hearings and whatnot and all of that. But now you have Bezos, the Amazon guys trying to bring you know new, you're doing Washington Post Live. That didn't used to be part of what the, uh, the dynamic was there. So how do you think about these changes in technology and how they've affected journalism, both everything from research to distribution and platforms, et cetera?
2: Um, it's a great question and something we definitely have to think about all the time at the Post in a way that obviously we were at Axios, but it was baked into our DNA because we were a startup at Axios. Um, When what I've learned is, you know, when you work at a place that is a legacy newsroom, change is scary. And frankly, nobody knows kind of what people want. And I think when you get into these rooms where smartest minds in media are thinking about different ways to deliver journalism, given these new technologies and platforms, there's a tendency to almost forget that, like, we're humans ourselves, you know? Like I'm I, I will often ask people, like, well, no, think about how you consume content. Think about like what you do. You're not reading sixteen articles about the new house speaker. You might read one or two from the Washington Post, but that's not the only thing you want to read. You're not typing WashingtonPost.com on your computer and showing up at the home page. Most people come to us from social media, which is changing declining rapidly from a search engine like Google. And that's also a game that you have to play or from organic sharing from friends and things like that. And so we really have to think about how people are actually behaving, not only what do we think they want to read. It's a lot about meeting them where they are, and because media is so fractured now, that's harder than ever. The type of news and content that people want on TikTok, which they do want news, is wildly different than the way that we would present it in a column or a news article. It also has implications for the business side because TikTok exists in its own platform and does not link to the website in any way, so that doesn't generate traffic. It's harder to monetize. TikTok obviously controls the ads on their platform. And so you have to constantly weigh what is sort of worth investing in when you aren't getting those same returns on investment that we're used to in media and that especially legacy media folks really kind of depend on traffic, traditional ads, you know, sponsors for newsletters or Washington Post live events. And so a lot of the conversations I think we've been having lately is how to, especially when social media is declining, I would say, and not the best hub to find news. How do you give someone a product that is, because of what I do in The Post, political in nature, but brings together all the best parts and experiences from these platforms in a way that feels familiar but unique and new. And so I'm always trying to look at places like Reddit or TikTok or YouTube Shorts and and gather, it's almost reporting sort of, what are people talking about on these apps? How are they talking about and feeling about things like the presidential election? And how can we bring that to our audience who probably subscribe to the paper more often than not and are older than the people who are on TikTok? But might have those same opinions or want to learn what's going on and so that's what i've noticed lately not just with us but other places trying to not be everything to everyone but to fill this void that we're seeing where there isn't one clear social platform that's dominating like facebook used to like twitter used to like people thought threads might but isn't instagram's also really hard doesn't link back to the website it stays in the app and so I think one of the biggest changes is really the business consideration because that changes what you write, where you're putting it, who's writing it, how often you're doing it. And I think it's difficult for folks who have been doing this for a long time to immediately see the benefits of investing in those platforms, taking risks, doing things that are not anything like traditional journalism, divorcing yourself from the pain (laughs) of, okay, this isn't going to make us money in the way that we know how, but we have enough smart people to get ahead of different ways to make money from this platform, knowing what we know, and being able to make educated guesses. The last thing I would say is that across the board, media now reflects, I think, a lot of what people are talking about on Twitter, for better or for worse. And I think that can sometimes limit our discussions, like I was saying earlier about, you know, like the new house speaker or something like that. I'll get out and do focus groups, and it's like nobody even knows who this man is, and they don't care and That doesn't mean that they're bad or misinformed or you know shouldn't be like voting. it means we need to be doing things entirely differently because when you're looking at TV, you're listening to radio, you're you're uh, reading things online, it's the same conversations over and over and over again. And people want different content and they want to consume it in ways that are much more engaging. People love subtitles and captions. They like quick videos. They like sound. Attention spans are shorter than ever. That also really changes what we write, how you write it, how you present it. And those are those are, again, changes that are hard for someone who is my age, let alone folks who have been doing it for decades and have to sort of get used to this idea of, OK, now we're writing for a different audience and it might not bank us money in the way we think, but it will open doors to something
0: new. Yeah. It's so fascinating here. you talk about gathering this information from these different places in terms of you know Reddit and TikTok. I guess the theme of this pod is going to be the OG piece, but it's relevant, I think, in terms of how media was shaped and how public opinion was shaped in this country. So when I was on the editorial board of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, you would come in and you would get the dead tree copies of the New York Times and the Plain Dealer. And you would sit down and read those. And then we'd have a meeting to talk about the news of the day. First of all, all this like wait, this is a job. You read about the news and talk about your opinions about it. And so that was like really drawn to that because of my own trajectory. But that was the extent of what the information gathering, it was what was in the times and maybe it was in your local paper. And then you t- that shaped what the whole paper would actually be doing.
2: And it's so different now. And I'm so grateful for that. And what's most interesting is that data that our next gen team, next generation team has collected. They focus on audiences that are like 18 to 32 and how they behave and interact with us. And apparently our data shows that that demo is actually really interested in multiple perspectives and are turned off almost from clear or extreme biases. So like they might look something up on the Washington Post and then go to see what and whether Fox News has written about the same thing. And that is something that I've seen happening in real time on TikTok, which has been the most fascinating. These kids are having live political debates and they are cordial and they are civil and they are thoughtful and they literally, because it's an app on your phone, bring together people who are living in Palestine, who are living in New York city, who are coming from Kansas city Mm. and, 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 you know, white moms sitting in their kitchen, literally being like, I'm just here to listen. Like it is among the more fascinating trends I've, I've seen happen lately because it flies in the face of what I think we probably all think, which is changing rapidly, which is like the internet is this cesspool polarized place and nobody everything. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And like nobody wants to talk to each other. Nobody's talking to Mm -hmm. each other. It's like actually the younger generation and the folks who are on TikTok who aren't even necessarily always younger, they're interested in engaging with things they don't agree with. They're interested in kind of pushing the envelope in a way that is open to hearing other people do the same. The biggest example I've seen of this lately and that I've talked to my editors about is that it, it really feels like the country is not ready properly for a third party. But but at the same time, it truly feels like it's the first time that a sizable amount of folks are just done with the two-party system. And I think a big Mm -hmm. part of that is the, the group of people who have turned 18 recently or are turning 18 ahead of this new election or are older than 18, maybe haven't voted and would be for the first time. I see these conversations on Reddit, on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram, where people are like, I remember my parents sitting down after 9-11 and being like, well, we don't really have any good alternatives to George Bush, so I guess our hands are tied. You know, lesser of two evils situation. And they're like, we're done. We're done doing that. We don't have Mm -hmm. to turn into our parents overnight. We can think about ways to primary the sitting president. We can think about ways to get ahead of a situation where we're stuck with a lesser of two evils. But until we have that solution, we don't need to support one or the other because that party loyalty and identification just isn't there. And that's really clear on social, even with the most liberal folks. They they do not care if you have a D next to your name unless you prove that you share the same moral compass as them. And that's a huge change that I don't think many folks in media are picking up on, but especially I think in politics and on political campaigns on the left.
0: You're, you're teeing up our next podcast guest. After you is going to be Maurice Mitchell, the Working Families Party, who's trying to build a third political force within this country. So we will we will ask him about what you have yes. flagged here. So
2: yes, that's great. I mean, and and I think the currents are there. I mean, you guys see it too. There are at least four people now running. I think. As independents or Green Party candidates and the third party ticket against Biden, folks want an alternative. They want choices. You know, it seems simple enough. People just want choices and they don't like feeling like they don't have them. And they definitely don't like feeling like they're being told what to do. And so I think these alternative movements are real. Um, It's just a matter of can you build a proper third party during a presidential election cycle? I don't know. We'll find out next, uh, tune into the next episode <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Alexia, I was, in- I was so intrigued by hearing you say how you go to some what, what are alternative sources to to gather information or to check out you know take the temperature of or you know check the pulse up through other platforms like like Reddit and that you will go back to your editors and say, This is what I was hearing, right? Like this is kind of what I'm seeing. How do you view your role or your experience so far in the at the intersection of the, your journalism career so far? And as a young woman of color, someone of your generation, but also from your particular lived experience and everything from your family background to even you were talking about your class background. Yeah. In this ongoing rapidly changing landscape of news and media where you do have these sort of intergenerational multi-generations in the newsroom
2: yeah it's a great question and and you know and
1: races right
2: yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. i feel like i mean you guys know media and newsrooms for a long time have been like we're committed to dei and we're going to make it more diverse xyz and then like Mm
0: -hmm. you know you see the
2: newsrooms and they look the same and Mm -hmm. it's like well how's this happening you know and and like I know how it's happening, like yeah, because I've I know been in it, because yeah. uh, I've been in it and in different parts of it, and and it's like shocking, you know, how people can say one thing and then it's like, well, you're doing the complete opposite. So yes, no wonder yes, the results we d- we aren't know. there, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is the first time though that like it truly feels different. Uh, like I've never had more people come up to me than I have in my short time at the post. Like literally being like we don't know anything you tell us what we don't know tell us what we're not wow. doing tell us what we're wow. not seeing mm-hmm. and that could be That's great you know you you might think it could be another situation where they're saying something but don't actually want it it's everyone from like the head of comms to the head of opinion mm-hmm. to like the ceo like literally everyone is like looking to me and other folks in in my similar position being like Guys, what are we getting wrong? What do you mm-hmm. all know? Because clearly, what we know and are trying isn't working. And it's right. the, and 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 what is also remarkable, I've heard it at least three times, and the new CEO just said it himself, and I was shocked to hear him say this in front of you know an all-company meeting. They keep they keep being like people think the Washington Post is just a bunch of old white guys. Sitting around making this paper, and like, yet we cannot, <laughs> we cannot allow that to keep happening. We cannot mm-hmm. allow that to be the, the perception image. because mm-hmm. it's not right. And I'm like, okay, well, mm. you know, I, I don't know that that perception just started mm-hmm. like today, but right. good, good to start acknowledging it, and good to be to put your ego aside. You know, I think for a long time, editors and newsroom leaders were kind of like feeling like if we talked about it, we were pushing them out. And that's not the case. We need to bring, I, there is so much, I don't know. People talk about like Bush era tax cuts. And I'm like, guys, I was sitting in my parents' kitchen. Like they were still making me dinner at that point in my life. Like I was in elementary school, like, please teach me these things and, and vice versa. And there are also stories that simply won't be brought up or told. There are perspectives that, that won't, be told or considered, I'll, I guess I'll think of an idea from the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey news cycle. And someone in an editorial meeting had proposed, and it was totally in good faith, an idea, a column sort of around like welcoming this new cohort of Swifties to the NFL and like not explaining football to them, but that's how the idea came off. And luckily one of my colleagues who's a woman like raised her hand and was like, you know, listen, I think it's a noble idea, but it's very easy to write this as like a mansplaining, mm. hey girls, like let me tell you about sports when like actually a lot of women do watch football and know sports and know what's going on. And even if they don't, doesn't mean they're asking you for an explainer on how football works just cause they like Taylor Swift. And I don't think that idea actually came to fruition because of conversations like that. And mm. you know, I think well, I've, I've talked to Steve about this before. It's uh, someone likened it to like, you know, being chased by wolves, essentially, like if you are a young person of color in a newsroom, and you see something or read something that you're like, oh, that's not right, or that sounds kind of racist, or like we people Mm -hmm. wouldn't wouldn't talk like this. If you don't say something, you're eaten alive by those wolves that are chasing you. And if you do say something, you're being eaten alive afterwards, thinking, did I say the right thing? Did I step out of turn? Was I supposed to even bring that up? And that's something I have to get over time and again, but they are so receptive to hearing things like that and actually making changes. So it's made it a lot easier over time, but I am so heartened that they're like, look, you know a lot more than we do, so let's uh, collaborate.
0: Just real quick for the audience members who may not be sports fans, Travis Kelsey is a (laughs) pro football player for the Kansas City Chiefs who is dating Taylor Swift, who I think most people know. And what people Uh, don't know about Travis Kelsey is that he's from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is where I am from. and He went to Heights High, where my brother Jeff went to high school. All all things connected.
2: Your brother could have Uh, been dating (laughs) Taylor Swift in another life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be that would be something else. Alexi, what you were talking about some platforms, I'm, I'm pretty intrigued and just curious. So what are some platforms that you will regularly check out as a journalist that you're drawn to, that you, you look to um, glean conversations from and trends from beyond just looking at, you know, all the other news sites?
2: A lot of it uh, these days comes from like individual creators, you know, or like I I hesitate to say influencers, but those trusted voices you can go to, whether it's on Instagram or TikTok or Reddit and see sort of what's going on. Two weird things I've been doing, weird, (laughs) to come up with ideas at the post. One, I've literally just been going through the comment sections of different articles and looking at those debates that people are having Mm. because there are often bits and pieces and angles that I'm like, oh, this is what they want to know about, or this is what they're tussling over, and like we haven't Mm. addressed that, or this is a good follow-up story idea based on what people are actually talking about. and. That's the greatest use of social media, obviously, is just like going to this place where there's endless spaces where you can find conversations. And Reddit is a really good place for that too. Uh, There are these, you know, general subreddits that are just like where you can ask questions. And those often warrant some of the more interesting ideas. There was one recently that was like, A general question about what are some things in life that have quietly gone away? And people said some, you know, obvious examples like, I don't know, like CDs or cassette tapes and things like that, right? Like physical things. But then someone wrote an answer that was ownership and the concept of ownership and how we rent everything you can Mm -hmm. you rent you rent movies and music and streaming services you rent cars why own a car when you can uber people can't afford homes so they're renting you can rent furniture you can rent clothes you can rent designer handbags like there's this world in which we have come to kind of distance ourselves from ownership and the idea of ownership and at first that conversation was only about housing and housing affordability And, you know, this big problem with if you couldn't own a home, then like you should feel some sort of shame. And and that's an issue to now. It's like, actually, guys, we rent so many different things and we've made this quiet transition to a place where we should be having a more holistic conversation about what that means personally, for the way we socialize, for the economy. And that was just something I came across and I was like, I would have never thought of that on my own, Mm, you know, so so those are always helpful and fun.
0: I went to see this uh, kind of my new thing this year. i going to stand up comedy, and this comedian had a whole thing about these things that have disappeared. And he was talking about like CDs and going to like um, Tower Records, and then he's like,
1: "Oh, Tower!" And Records. then
0: they ran out. Can you imagine running out of music now? Can you go to Spotify? <laughs> like I ran out of music. So that was just interesting in that regard. But well, I want to ask you about this this reading the comments thing. And so,, I um, also want to thank you for the partnership we had around getting a piece published in the in the post. And so we did this piece on the California's political leaders not really being serious about uh, sufficiently serious about getting a black woman into the Senate seat. And Gavin Newsom had said that that was important, and then he's kind of, I would argue, doing the, um, you know, appeasement moves and whatnot. So anyway, it's a racially explicit piece around this. Um, and so there were 1,600 comments to that piece, I believe. And so I, for my mental health, don't read the comments. I did task Charlene with reading some yeah, of them. Yeah, I did. <laughs> but I think the I more serious <laughs> question is, Is it what's in there, right? Is it just like vitriol and I'm the real racist and blah, blah, or that you finding some actual real nuggets of stuff to work with and whatnot?
2: You have to sort through the the bad stuff to find the good stuff, you know? And like when there are people who are just going back and forth with each other, which is usually what it turns into, they, Mm -hmm. they start out fighting against you or your concept and then they end up fighting with each other and it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, this is great. You guys are just angry and like need a therapist. Um, (laughs) so there's a lot, there's a lot of, of, of feelings involved and, Mm -hmm. and obviously people are more likely to write when they're angry, Um, that said, I think the post readership is like pretty thoughtful across the board. I am so happy that you wrote that piece for so many reasons. We are starting a politics opinion newsletter in January and I'll be writing it. And Mm -hmm. the, over the last several weeks, we've been kind of prototyping it, starting it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I'm not kidding, Steve. We hadn't even talked about your idea. And it was like my first prototype for the newsletter and I wrote it the same idea that you did yours was light years better and like way smarter than mine but it was the same idea and I remember feeling nervous writing it and submitting it because I was like oh my god are they gonna think that I'm like a black woman who's like Who's like these other candidates? Angry black you women. Know. Yes, yeah, and I and it was literally like Newsom says X, Democrats say why mm-hmm. He just did this. It's mm-hmm. like window dressing, window dressing, window dressing, right. and like this is like a bigger problem for the Democratic Party, whatever. And I was so nervous because mm-hmm. I was like, "Do I have the authority to say this?" And then I was like, "Yes." I have been covering politics in the Democratic Party for long enough, number one. Number two, like we are not stupid and I'm not going to gaslight myself like we all can see, especially then particularly as people of color, like what is happening versus what is being said. And I think honestly, like the Biden-Harris relationship has put that into starker contrast for a lot of people of color, a lot of black folks with respect to the democratic party and what they're saying versus what they're doing. And that Mm. situation for Newsom, I was so annoyed that so many white Democrats rushed to the internet to get ahead of the narrative and to steer it in the direction of like, Oh my God. Yay. He's the best. Look at what he did, keeping his promise. And it's like, guys, do not be so short-sighted. Like think about the big picture. And When you submitted that, I was like, this is a sign from the universe. And it was, again, so much smarter than what I had written and actually something we could publish. But um, but frankly, it did take a little um, convincing because there is an immediate reaction, as I was mentioning earlier, where I think it's like your ego is involved, where it's like, well, who are we to say that those white candidates aren't qualified or like shouldn't have done? I'm like, no, 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 we're not saying they're not qualified. You need to read this and put your ego aside and be clinical about what we are saying, because we are being clinical. And just because we're black and we're saying it doesn't mean we're not. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so happy that you here. published this and you wrote this because it's almost like you're hurting someone's feelings if you suggest that someone should step aside and support a woman of color when it's like, you guys have been saying this for how long? Yeah. And like, Steve Phillips is the one proposing this idea, not the DNC, not the DSCC, not Joe Biden, like... Steve Phillips, thank you. But but yeah, I mean, it's really important to put it out there. And I think, honestly, I think more comments better, right? Because people are engaging with something, even if they disagree with it. It's like they're talking to other people about it. It gets people thinking, like, I think it's it's for the best.
0: Well, it's an interesting illustration, um, as you're even describing that, kind of like peeling back the curtain to a certain extent, right? That it takes kind of both. And it's actually, you know, a heart you need somebody on the inside who can actually have those conversations and navigate that process and help people grapple with the things they're facing. And then it, Sometimes it doesn't hurt to have an OG who knows Gavin Newsom for 25 years who could actually say, no, this is what the situation is. So I'm glad. Yes, I that think that's a big
2: part of it. Yes, me too. And, I, you know, all of the op eds that I've solicited externally, with the exception of Newt Gingrich, have been people of color or women. And it's like, I don't even think like oh i need to find a woman <laughs> or a person of color like i'm just like oh i know this person who would be great to write this or like from working in the past and covering like different grassroots movements and things through elections i know so many different types of folks that uh, you know a lot of the editors just by way of not reporting recently don't know and that's been a huge advantage just mm-hmm. truly bringing in different voices and those pieces do very well they get a lot of traffic and people read them and you know, it's smart. They're smart folks.
0: <laughs> I was once on a cross country flight with, or I sat next to Callista Gingrich and get Newt's wife actually. And then she wouldn't pay for the full Wi-Fi for the whole flight. So we kept running out and then she would turn and talk to me. And as you know, there's the stereotype about all black people know each other. And then this was the time when Newt was doing a show with Van Jones. And then she's like, Oh, well, do you know Van Jones? I'm like, Actually I do know Vanjo, so I guess we all do know one another. So. Oh, but, I
2: can't even imagine that. Oh, I
0: know. She was quite lovely actually. Good.
2: Um, they're they're very like silly and cute on Instagram. She's always posting selfies of them, like from the golf course and like oh, funny. They're like these incredible filters and it's just like, big, like very earnest. <laughs> I know.
0: So I wanna pick up a little bit about this thing you were talking about. You were talking a little about the role of being an opinion editor. And so your career though has been as a writer, and so both how is it different and also why did you make that switch and then what are you hoping to accomplish by taking on this different type of a role?
2: One thing that people outside of media don't usually know is editor is, I mean titles I think are stupid across the board, (laughs) but editor, uh, like a lot of editors are also writers and I'll be starting this newsletter as I said and um, hoping to publish my first column soon actually about RFK Jr. and black voters. Mm. and his anti-vaccine rhetoric and his medical racism documentary and these ways in which it's not just what he's saying, it's who he's trying to appeal to when he's saying Mm -hmm. these things. And Mm -hmm. the last poll I saw, it was either the Times poll or a morning consult poll from last week. He had 28% of support from black voters. Biden had 50, Trump had 13 in a three-way matchup. 28%. That's, I mean, that's wild. And especially when people only think that RFK would take from Trump, there's evidence to suggest that he'd take from Biden and Trump equally. And you dig down and goes back to what we were saying anyway. So that's all to say, Mm -hmm. we'll be doing both writing and editing. I love editing. It's kind of like doing a puzzle. Uh, and like moving things around to tell the best story, thinking about the reader and and their experience and what you want them to feel. I like working with writers. I think reading other people makes you a better writer. and that's a big part of why I wanted to do it. It's also a great leadership position and an opportunity I didn't have where I was before. And like it's crazy to me that I get to be in rooms and make decisions. That I do, because it does come with a lot of authority and responsibility, but that's a big part of the appeal that that came up in the interview process, too, is they were like, we want someone who is ready to do things differently, who can bring a different perspective. And I think both being a reporter and coming from startups... I just thought about opinions and editorials differently. I go back and forth between being like, I want to have a TV show. I want to write books. I want to run a newsroom someday. But it all goes back to, I think, that original kind of like driving force, which is like, I just love connecting with people. I love knowing like what hurts them, what makes them excited, what they want, what they're scared of, and like how to insert myself, whether by helping bringing it to life or just like sharing a narrative that could benefit other people either in the way they feel or the way they make decisions.
1: Oh, just here for all the things that you named that you said. I don't know if I want to Thank show you. or you know this <laughs> or that. I could just imagine you doing all of it and it's uh, oh. exciting to see you on this path and see, you know, we've been following, you know, your career for actually yeah. a bit and we're just uh, really excited for you and to see you in this new role and looking forward to your newsletter. That sounds awesome.
2: Thank you, it feels good. It feels like I'm in the right spot, you know, and I've tried to be someone who like adheres to the idea that life is nonlinear and that's especially true and can be with your career. And so I've always kept the door open to considering things that seem not directly related to what I've always done. And I'm very grateful for that sort of like ability to be nimble and to pivot because even like with sociology, you know, it, it like made me think in ways I wouldn't have otherwise and it was so beneficial.
0: But not not medicine though. Um,
2: so. <laughs> no. <laughs> there are professionals for that.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: um
0: so we're getting towards the end, but you mentioned you're in this newsletter on politics and that you're doing, you know, both well, you are one and you have some of your finger on the pulse of kind of the attitudes of young people and their views and whatnot. So as you look at twenty twenty four what do you see? What are you gonna be looking for? Do you have any like predictions of how it's going to play itself out?
2: Yeah, it's never been more over.
0: <laughs> it's
2: so over. Now, I'm trying not to be too negative, but i genuinely <laughs> I genuinely think what I said earlier is true that there is now a sizable amount of people in the country who are done with the two party system don't feel that they owe Democrats anything, feel that they helped Democrats uh, keep Trump out in 2020 and now that now Democrats owe them to do the same and that they haven't done enough to prevent that from happening. I think people have uh, come to realize that the power of their vote is often oversold. I think it's especially precarious when Republicans across the country are throwing, (laughs) trying to throw votes away, (laughs) trying to overturn election results. In Ohio, after issue one passed, which was enshrining abortion rights into their state constitution, Republican state legislators are now trying to block (laughs) judges from enacting that and saying that instead Mm. they will be the sole ones to decide. So it's a mess. I think what I'll be looking for is like whether young people especially are actually getting involved. There have been a bunch of these groups from David Hogg and others to sort of recruit young people to run for state legislatures. And, you know, they're not the most sexy races, they're not the most sexy positions, but they're where these policies are actually happening. And I think that people understand more now than ever that that's where you can affect change, whether joining a body like that or really just sort of lobbying your local lawmakers instead of focusing on Congress. But, you know, I I think the Democratic Party is, um, I think they're gaslighting themselves. And I think every day that they say Biden beat Trump once, he's The only one who can do it for that reason is another day they're wasting not finding a solution to keeping i think some of the most dangerous people out of office and that's not just trump it's you know down the ballot and i mean you know as well as i do that like if biden wins or loses they need to figure out what the future of their party looks like what they stand for what direction they're moving in you know none of that is clear and and right now all we're hearing about is a bunch of white male governors so i mean that's fine but if that's the future of the party then where is that coalition of voters from barack obama's time and from joe biden's 2020 run that helped you pull off at these races like in georgia as well that helped you pull off victories you couldn't have otherwise i mean it's really hard to turn a non voter into a voter. And the longer that they allow this kind of like disdain to, to fester while, while not acknowledging it, the longer they will have this universe of people that in the future they'll call swing voters. But they're people who, you know, aren't voting because they feel no sense of reciprocity or, you know, acknowledgement or respect. They don't feel heard for Republicans for all the things they do poorly. Their faux populism. It works, it makes people mm. feel something. You, they say it enough times, it's easy to regurgitate if you hear it on Fox News or someone say it at work and it's a problem, it's mm. a problem. And I think Democrats mm. are really unwilling to look at themselves in the mirror because they're so committed to the idea that they know right from wrong. And I just think that uh, a lot of young people especially see through that.
0: It's not a new issue. In 1984, Andy Young, was the mayor of Atlanta, trying to get Mondale's campaign to, to get his campaign to do better and be better. And he says, I'm trying, but they're a bunch of smart-ass white boys and they don't listen, right? So this is why I titled the chapter in my first book, Fewer Smart-Ass White Boys. So there is that. It's a sober note you paint. I still feel we need to get up every day and pray for Joe Biden's good health. In <laughs> fact, this battle is already taking place under the radar around what's the future of the party going to be. Who is the leader is going to be? Yeah. So they're going to pop up, you know, the media, not you, of course, are going to be talking about different white male governors, et cetera. But I I feel the landscape is so very different. The opportunity is so different. Personally, I believe that someone like, or if not the actual person, Stacey Abrams, I think could actually speak to the moment in terms of tapping all of those who are not the typical, you know, straight white male model. But yes. I'd like to have more time to have that, that fight. Let's play that out through 2028. And so. Great.
2: Totally. Totally. Here's hoping we get some smart folks like her back in the fold and we don't have people, you know, shutting her down because she had the audacity to believe in herself publicly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're working on it.
2: (laughs) I'm like, I can't even say more. I'll get myself into trouble. I'll get angry.
1: (laughs) Alex, where can people go to follow your work and what you're doing.
2: Yes, definitely WashingtonPost.com. Please give us uh, your views and check out the homepage and the opinion page. The app is great. I wake up every morning and check the app's opinion section, of course. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I really don't use it that much. So you can find me at Alexi, A-L-E-X-I, but I, um, I'm rarely posting even articles over there these days. All
0: right, well, and thank you can you find so me much. in D.C., Oh, yes. all right. You can find me in
2: D.C. if you're here. Right. But yes, I appreciate you guys for this thoughtful conversation and all that you do and wish we had three hours to have it. But next time over drinks and in person, hopefully.
0: That'd be great. Thank you so Sounds much for Sounds good. Yeah. Us, it's
1: great talking yeah. to you. Thank you so much.
0: All right. That's all the time we have for today. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast. By subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Instagram or Facebook. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. And special thanks to April Elkier for a quality check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep checking WashingtonPost.com and keep the fit.